0: Hello and welcome to the Phenomena Podcast, the podcast where we talk about Irish women who have been underrepresented or written out of Irish history. You're here with
1: Maria Butler and Shauna Leland coming to you live from quarantine. Not live.
0: Not live. Coming to you from quarantine where we are slowly losing our minds. But we're still going to teach you about Irish women that we have discovered that are trying to keep us sane I guess I really have lost my mind I'm sorry okay (laughs) so again same as last week's episode we are just recording through our laptops so apologies if the sound quality is not as good as it could be hopefully this quarantine will lift soon and we'll be able to record using our nice recording equipment in person and things will sound better again
1: but until then we will just Keep on pushing on. (laughs) This week, I'm going to tell you about Margaret E. Cousins, who was a woman who played a big part in the Irish suffragette movement. She was one of the founding members of the Vegetarian Society of Ireland, which being a big veegs myself, I was very fond of. She was a part of the English suffragette movement. She ended up moving to India, where she had a massive part in the women's right to vote there and their women's rights movement. And she's credited as the person composed the music for the Indian National Anthem. Cool. Yeah, she's a pretty cool lady. But it all started in 1878 when she was born in Boyle in County Roscommon. And she was born Margaret Nee Gillespie. So she was brought up in a Unionist and Methodist household. And from an early age, she took an interest in the nationalist cause. Now, she was the oldest of 15 children. Can you imagine having 15 children? I can't imagine having one child, let alone 15. Was it, was it all the same mother? Yeah. Well, they didn't say that, but I think so. They did not say that, so, yeah. That poor woman. I know. <laughs> imagine that house, like, that must have been crazy. I'm just thinking, imagine that woman's body. I know, that poor, poor woman. Now, she got a scholarship to the Victoria High School for girls in Derry, so I'd say she like skedaddled out of that house as quickly as she could. And matriculated with distinction in eighteen ninety eight. She studied at the Royal Academy of Music in Dublin and she graduated with a Bachelor of Music in nineteen oh two. Then she married James Cousins, who was an aspiring poet and playwright. And he's also a pretty cool guy. He's a big feminist, as we'll find out. At their wedding, she announced her commitment to vegetarianism. And her husband was a vegetarian, too. And she was later appointed the secretary of the Irish Vegetarian Society, which would have been very rare for then in Ireland, when it would have been, you'd be lucky to get a ham sandwich. I was just thinking that, like, because obviously we very recently spoke about Kathleen Lynn
0: and like all the poverty and everything that came inherent with living in inner city Dublin at around this, this time period as well. It's like, I'm sure there were a lot of vegetarians out there, but not by choice. Yeah. I, I do understand like the animal rights and all that kind of side of things. And maybe this is very reductive of me, but part of me is kind of like, oh, yeah, it's all well and good for you to be wealthy, to come out and say, like, against, like, eating meat. But at the same time, there was so much starvation and poverty in Ireland at the time that, like, just eat the food that you get.
1: She was very interested in Indian philosophies, which would have more of a reason why, I think, it's her philosophy. I, myself, am vegan. I've been vegetarian for many years. And I think it was like a philosophical thing that she believed that animals were sacred and that it would be like eating a human. So I don't think it was kind of wealth that that kind of, you know, gave her the option, the luxury of being vegetarian. It was a very strong moral standpoint of, and she wasn't wealthy. She was the family of 15. She got a scholarship to school. They weren't wealthy as, far as I know, but they were Unionist and Methodist, um, so they would have probably had more money than the Catholics. But don't think by any means was she actually rich because she wasn't. (laughs) So yeah, at her wedding, she announced that she was going to be vegetarian and was appointed secretary of the Irish Vegetarian Society. Um, Now, at this time, women would usually give up their jobs when they got married, but she continued teaching part-time. And she was buddies with James Joyce and other big literary figures. She went on holidays with Yeats. Their house seemed to be a bit of a hot spot for all the cool hip artists about Dublin at the time. She experimented with astrology, automatic writing, and would hold seances in her house. <laughs> automatic ri- writing, which I found out is when you write and leave the spirits right for you, you kind of hold your pen flaccidly and hope that's some other being from another world will come and come and take pen
0: do you want a a random useless fact about automatic writing yes this is I'm really interested by it but I think that most people will find it really boring so when I studied cataloging in library science there's loads of rules as to how you catalog a particular thing based on like who writes it and all that kind of stuff There's a particular subsection of rules for how to catalogue books that were written as automatic writing dependent on like who the ghost was that you were channelling and uh, what manner you channeled them.
1: That is amazing. (laughs) And they're taking it very seriously. I mean, you have to catalogue, otherwise the whole world goes mad, mad. Uh, So she was very inspired by this book called The Secret Doctrine, The Synthesis of Science, Religion and Philosophy by a woman named Helena Blavatsky. And uh, it was a book that kind of entered their zeitgeist at the time, let's say. And uh, she felt as if she had discovered a new universe, that a new universe had entered her and expanded her consciousness about time and space, man. Ethnology. Ethnology cosmology symbolism and magic so she was into the freaky deaky voodoo stuff it's pretty cool so in 1906 she went to manchester to speak at a vegetarian conference and on the same trip she attended a session at the national conference for women and she said of that trip the latter was to prove itself a turning point in my life it was the first large gathering of women i had contacted It made me aware of the injustices and grievances which were taken for granted as the natural fate of my sex. So after she attended that meeting, uh, she joined the Irish branch of the National Conference of Women. In 1907, she and her husband attended the London Convention of the Theosophical Society, and she made contacts with suffragettes, vegetarians, anti-vivisectionists, which is anti-experiments on animals and animal cruelty, And Occultists in London, where she met Annie Besant, a big activist and author who becomes more relevant in her life later. So she was pretty ahead of her time, like in terms of animal cruelty and animal rights stuff. And she got very inspired by the British suffragette movement. So when she came back, she joined the women's movement here and founded the militant non-party affiliated with Irish Women's Franchise League with Hannah Shee Skeffington. So they were in communication with suffragettes over in England, specifically Mrs. Emmeline Pankhurst, who is best remembered for helping secure women's right to vote in the UK. And her husband was also in touch with a lot of English suffragettes. So he was pretty involved as well, which is cool. And in 1909, he actually worked for the Women's Social and Political Union in London. Um, In November 1910, Margaret was among six Dublin women attending the Parliament of Women, which attempted to march to the House of Commons to hand a resolution to the Prime Minister. 119 of the women marching there got arrested, 50 required medical treatment. So Margaret and some of the other women decided to break the windows of the House of Cabinet Ministers, and she was arrested and sentenced to a month in Holloway Prison.
0: I've read about this, Yeah.
1: Yeah, so she's pretty, pretty cool, pretty radical. I like her style. So when she got let out of prison, it's a pretty good sentence in all fairness. She only got a month. If you did that now, you'd probably get a long time.
0: I mean, at the moment, you can get put into prison for six months for being further than two kilometers outside of your house. So
1: Different world we live in. <laughs> So when she got out of prison uh, and came back to Ireland, uh, her and Hannah Shee Skeffington set up a feminist newspaper called The Irish Citizen, and it was first published on the 25th of May 1912 as an eight-page weekly newspaper. And by June, it had sold 3,000 copies and was reaching for up to 10,000 readers. The motto of the newspaper was, for men and women equally the rights of citizenship, for men and women equally the duties of citizenship. So she regularly addressed open air meetings in Dublin and around the country. Now, the Irish suffragettes' biggest beef was the non-inclusion of women as citizens in the agenda of the Irish Parliamentary Party's Home Rule proposal. I think we were talking about it in the Mary McSweeney episode.
0: Because Mary McSweeney actually used to publish in that um in that newspaper.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And she ended up splitting off because she thought it was more important for Irish freedom. Isn't that right, Mary McQueenie? Yeah. Whereas Marguerite Cousins was very hard driven on women need the right to vote and everything before, and need equal part to play in everything for Ireland to become free at all. So... A lot of the men, the home rule politicians like Tim Healy, John Redmond, Ulaw and Joe Devlin looked upon them really as gay crashers that were interrupting their important work, you know. So the women became quite militant to publicize their demand for their right to vote and to publicly seek support for it. And Margaret said, three of us volunteered to break the windows of Dublin Castle the official seat of English domination. That sound of breaking glass on January 28, 1913 reverberated round the world and did what we wanted. It told the world that Irish women protested against an imperfect and undemocratic home rule bill. We, Mrs. Connery, Mrs. Hoskins and myself, were marched from the castle to the College Street police station next to the vegetarian restaurant. So they broke the windows in Dublin Castle out of protest. <laughs> this became like a common thing of breaking windows. And um, She was jailed again for another month in 1913 with fellow activists. And during their imprisonment in Tullamore Jail, they successfully fought for political status in prison after a brief and well-publicized hunger strike. So pretty hardcore. Those early Irish feminists and their hunger strikes. Rock on. Later, she wrote a book with her husband, uh, much later called We Two Together. So this is what she wrote in that book. In Ireland, our work for women's suffrage was chiefly propagandist through open air meetings in summer and indoor meetings in winter. The introduction of a home rule bill supported by the Liberal Party looked very hopeful for the gaining of freedom of Ireland at long last. But the bill made no mention of Irish women being made citizens of their own country. We stomped the country pointing out the injustice of the omission and demanding an amendment in the proposed Home Rule Bill. The Irish nationalist members of Parliament were heckled about it wherever in public they spoke. They did not like this. They objected to women butting into their men's way of winning political freedom, but the era of dumb, self-effacing women was over. Everywhere we explained that the Irish Women's Franchise League was not identical in its militant methods with the English suffragettes. We were not attacking shop windows. We had no liberal by elections, no cabinet ministers in Ireland. We were as keen as men on the freedom of Ireland, but we saw the men clamoring for amendments which suited their own interests and made no recognition of the existence of women as fellow citizens. We women were convinced that anything which improved the status of women would improve, not hinder, the coming of real national self government. So it's pretty obvious what she's saying you know but at the time would have been really somewhat radical you know
0: Mm, for sure and it's such common sense
1: very much so she seems to be really like clear spoken about her points and stuff which really I think lended to her affecting so many people but unfortunately times haven't changed that much that as artists and kind of radical thinkers They weren't making enough money to survive in Dublin, herself and her husband. They were in quite a pickle financially, even though her husband had loads of books and a few plays and she, you know, was doing a lot of work herself. So they actually had to immigrate and they first moved to Liverpool where he worked in a vegetarian food factory for a while. But in 1915, they were invited to India by Annie Besant, who was the author and activist they met in London. And so Margaret and James moved to India. There, Margaret became involved in both the Theosophical Movement and the Women's Rights Movement. So she actually missed the whole Easter Rising in Ireland because she was in India. And in nineteen sixteen, while she was engaged as a teacher, she became the first non-Indian member of the Indians Women's University at Pune. Yes.
0: Theosophical. You've mentioned it a couple of times. What is it?
1: Basically it's like spirituality, but she wasn't Catholic. Okay. And she identified a lot with Hinduism and Indian teachings and philosophies, like that your body is a temple. Stuff that's actually, you know, would be very common today, really, That um, but that it's all kind of higher meaning, the universe, man. There is a beautiful quote in an article about her deep in the RT archives, and it says, Margaret was shaped by the complex beauty of the late 19th century Celtic revival in Dublin and the humanitarian spirit of the countryside at Boyle. That's cute. Now, she differed from a lot of Western women that went to India because she wasn't engaging in this kind of white savior type behavior that is well known and still very active today. You know, when people come back from India and like completely appropriate culture and stuff like that, like she was very um, like logistical and practical and she was there to work and be a member of the community and to serve her community and to live her life she wasn't there as a lot of nuns and stuff went you know and taught to do charity work she was there
0: to she wasn't there to like civilize the community or
1: not at all and she wanted to integrate into the the community there so yeah she taught at a school for children at madenapel i'm sorry i don't i can't pronounce that correctly while James worked as a newspaper editor and later as the principal of the Theosophical College. Now, one important part of her life or what turned out to be a very significant moment was that there was a poet and polymath, which is a person of wide knowledge or learning, which I found out. (laughs) Like the two of us. (laughs) Oh, yes, of course. I didn't even have to look that up. I just knew it. I'm a person of wild knowledge wild knowledge wild no-, no I probably have wild knowledge that's, that's more accurate Um. so his name is I'm so sorry if I'm pronouncing it wrong Um. it's pure ignorance I should have looked it up Rabindranath Tagore I'm just going to refer to him by his surname from here on in, who was a polymath and poet and the first non-European to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. He came to stay with them for a little while and it was just a short visit, but it turned out to be a massive moment because he sang this song while he was there, which was, again, a Pardon my ignorance, mispronunciation, uh, Jana Gana Mana, which they were very, I know, they're very affected by, uh, which is a song that kind of references a lot of religion, sorry, regions, mountains, and rivers of India. And he sang it there and they were very influenced by it. And he made his English translation when he was there. Now, why it's important is because that actually went on to become. The national anthem of India when India became free from Britain and while he was there the song had never been transcribed to to a permanent tune you know but when he was there he gave her the swara which is the note and she composed the melody using what he gave her and you know the way that he sang and everything so that it was a permanent record and that is now what is the Indian uh, national anthem so she's credited as the music composer of the indian national anthem which is pretty cool
0: that is pretty cool she's less of a composer and more of a chronicler though is she
1: yeah but they they still give her the the credit. so after that she became involved with two highly significant associations the all india women's conference and the Women's Indian Association, and they were launched by herself and Annie Besant uh, with the support of Indian women. For the Women's Indian Association, she edited their journal and was very outspoken on women's rights. They were very active in organizing a delegation to interview some of the higher-up political bigwigs who were inquiring into constitutional reform in India. So they were going to go ask them questions about what was going on and she drew up the address and in it she called for the vote for women, women's education, teacher training schools, women's medical colleges and maternity courses, compulsory and free education and an equal number of schools for boys and girls. So they approached these guys with this. During the 1920s, she drew closer to the Gandhian philosophy of non-cooperation which was a movement to resist British rule through nonviolent means. She was insistent on women's right to vote being part of the platform, and she used her experiences from Ireland and England to organize campaigns in key provinces. And she began in Madras and went to Bombay and Bengal and arranged public meetings, lobbied Indian legislators and solicited funds from Indians and foreign suffrage groups. So this had been really rare at the time. Like not only was she very anti British rule in India, she was very outspoken on women's rights and she went publicly speaking all around India, you know, to tell people about this. In nineteen twenty three she accepted an invitation from a local Hindu elite to become an honorary district magistrate of Saidapet Court of Madras of Madras. She stated that she would accept this invitation as it came from an Indian person and not from a representative of the colonial state. She mostly administered civil cases and had the heads of different religions in India by her side to help her with law books. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah.
0: Was she one of the first female magistrates in India?
1: Yeah, and she was quite outspoken on not wanting to be, you know, like she wouldn't have taken the position if it wasn't from a local person and she did give it up after a year because she wanted it to be given to an Indian woman
0: because that was the one criticism I was gonna have was like you know that's great but at the same time even though she is against like the British rule and all this kind of stuff you could see how she could be a stand-in for British rule by virtue of being like Irish all right but like would have grown up in similar circumstances but again there's still that idea of the white colonizer coming in and taking the jobs
1: that's really cool for sure she was very conscious of that you know and it's probably from her you know growing up in Ireland with British rule that she was very aware of the problems that come with somebody from another country take you know that are ruling over that country and taking the positions and stuff um she wrote a book called the awakening of asian womanhood now when i heard this i was like oh i was like jesus is this gonna be like you know weird or patronizing or you know white woman savior grossness but it's not i actually read the i skim read the first 70 pages of it it's actually all online the whole book and i'll post the link below and um, in it it's really well written and it reads like something that's written today i have a little quote like it's very just about women's rights and what feminism currently stands of or currently consists of in india and kind of the plight of women there and she was really anti-child bride situations and in it she details out the issue what happens a woman's psychology if she becomes a bride when she's 12 and how that will then negatively affect the man and hence society and everything like that so it's really interesting and really in-depth analysis of what was happening at the time in it she says i just have one quote from it that i thought was interesting ignorance makes slaves slave mothers produce craven children the ignorance and enslaved conditions of later Roman mo- motherhood brought about the fall of the great Roman Empire. There is a Western saying, educate that you may be free, foremost then among the race regenerators and nation builders who will be those large-minded persons who will work for the education of women. So in it, she is really just promoting the idea of women getting the education that they deserve. And she kind of goes through the different character analysis of women's place in society from an observational perspective but it's not i was pleased to find out it's not you know written from a, a kind of a colonial point of view or a...
0: oh, i'm not gonna lie when i first heard the title i was like it's a sexy book
1: <laughs> yeah the awakening of asian womanhood yeah, yeah. Um. No, but I, I, I actually, I enjoyed what I read of it, so I'd recommend checking that out. So she was deeply concerned about the custom of child marriage and the lack of education and freedom among, among girls. And in 1921, there were over 10 million girls who had been married between the ages of 10 and 15. She pointed out the social protest against these regressive practices by the people. So she was pretty steadfast in trying to reform that happening in society. She became very close with a woman who was an activist and a theatre practitioner named Kamala Devi Chateau Again, I'm so sorry for my bad pronunciations. And um, she had a big part in her political campaign and she became one of the leading socialist women in the Indian National Movement. They worked together a lot. In 1920, they tried to produce a drama together that had males and females acting together, but they faced mass opposition, as you can imagine. But um, because of that opposition, they actually then set up a political campaign for this woman to come into power. And she was very influenced by Margaret, who they call Greta, and she called her that she was like her guru. Uh, What she says of her was... It was Greta who organised the campaign, publicity, volunteer corporations and all the necessary paraphernalia. Music and cultural shows were introduced at election meetings, which people thoroughly enjoyed. An entirely different atmosphere was created by Greta's creative brain and all tension, vulgarity, abuses were avoided. The band of volunteers with dark blue badges had a sense of purpose, an emotion of romance and chivalry injected into them by the style of the campaign. She worked very hard and made everyone else work really hard, too. So she was really um, liked there. Her style of campaigning and stuff was appreciated and used a lot to pursue women's movement and socialist movement in 1932 she as a response to gandhi's call for a civil disobedience movement she violated government ordinances against public speech and public gatherings and she got arrested in 1932 and was sentenced to a year-long imprisonment at a woman's jail so again she was locked up when she was in court at the dock she gave a speech that was applauded to, to anyone that knew her And she said i am proud to stand here in support of free speech and indian national freedom and i am ashamed the english idealism has fallen to the present depths of oppression and suppression so she went away to jail for a year and there she was reminded of her experience in tullamore but here she was permitted to meet friends and her husband could visit her and she could receive books but not newspapers But she spent most of her time teaching other inmates how to read and write. And when she got out of prison, they had a big parade for her throughout the streets. So she was really liked. And, you know, people saw her as a monumental figure in the political movement for Indian freedom. She was recognized by the Indian state and was honored with the National Award for after they got independence in 1947. Um, She had a stroke herself during the 1940s. So she had to stop her public campaigning and stuff after she had a stroke and was paralysed. But she left a massive legacy behind her for her approach to women's rights and her involvement in the political movement in India and in Ireland. So yeah, she had a really mad life, I think.
0: No, for sure. I I really like, I'm I'm kind of fascinated by this idea of her integrating into the society, I guess. I find that quite, I I find that really interesting.
1: Yeah, she realised herself that she was kind of an enigma because the Catholics couldn't understand how an Irish woman could be both a Protestant and a home ruler, and the Protestants couldn't understand that she wasn't a missionary. In a lot of Indian literature actually point out that she was different from some of the other people that came there. There is a woman that was mentioned in my note called Catherine Mayo, who is an American woman that came and wrote a lot about Indian culture. And they actually not like condemned her writing, but, you know, they found it massively offensive to the way that she spoke about the country that she had come into. and. Margaret Cousins was actually often praised for her not being like the others. Margaret actually called that woman, Catherine Mayo, a morbid pathologist and a lady with a rake, And she said of herself, I am a lover of humanity and work for it through seeking advancement of womanhood to an equality of honour and opportunity with manhood. Like, my thing that I'm learning about Cousins is I appreciate her work and I appreciate the things that she did. I feel
0: like I wouldn't have been friends with her
1: oh really I'm like oh my god I would have been besties
0: <laughs> no I feel like I'd talk to her for like five minutes and just be like I just want to run away screaming
1: no I'd be like can I come to one of your seances <laughs> I'm like I'll come help you speak somewhere I love her I like that um I I I like her uh her philosophies you know and i like that she brought in like kind of a theatrical element to the campaigning and in the books that that awakening of asian womanhood what i've read like is that she went around giving these talks in public and really connected with a lot of women that that would be in situations whether it be that they got married when they were like 12 or they you know whatever it may be that she tried to, like, introduce a way of everybody. She wanted everybody to be a feminist, you know?
0: Oh, like, I completely get it. I'm just saying, like, in, in my mind, when you're talking about her, she just, so, like, I went to an educate together school when I was younger, and a lot of mothers would have been a particular type. They would have worn the flowy clothes, and there would have been crystals everywhere. And Whenever you walk into their house, there'd be incense. And it would just be like... Why can't we all just get along and have some tofu?
1: I'm currently waving a crystal at Rhea and tofu is my favourite food, so <laughs> we would have been great friends. <laughs>
0: yeah. Look, you can appreciate somebody's work without thinking that you're going to be friends with them, and that's the real lesson in feminism.
1: <laughs> yeah, I ha- I'll link all the stuff below if you fancy reading some more about her then it's all there for you. But I would recommend checking around. I think she was a pretty, pretty cool gal. Or she, or pick up a pen and uh, see if she'll come to you. You could do some automatic writing. See if the spirit of Mary E. Cousins will come to you and write something.
0: I mean, we're all in, in dire need of human contact at the moment. So maybe some superhuman
1: contact will solve the problem couldn't hurt right so
0: thanks very much for listening everybody if you liked this episode and you haven't listened to our other episodes please feel free to go back and listen to them especially now that we've got loads of spare time please follow us on our instagram page Phenomenal podcast or on our facebook and just yeah get in touch and say hi to us because we're lonely and locked away from the world. So yeah, thanks for listening and we'll talk to you guys again, hopefully next week. (laughs) Bye.